Hey, so this week, uh, school starts. Raise your hand if you start school this week. Yes. It's like this is the best time of the year, right? No? Okay, well, in the spirit of things, since school's starting, I wanted to read you guys something from a book. Remember those? You haven't touched them all summer, probably. Uh, But there's a book by C.S. Lewis. It's one of his Chronicles of Narnia. It's called The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Wow, big C.S. Lewis Chronicles of Narnia fans in the room. Okay, all right. Well, there's a... Man, I've never gotten this reaction. Okay, so uh, there's a, a famous scene in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. A young boy named Eustace has traded in his innocence. He's been deceived. And as a result, he's forced to wear dragon skin. He's covered in dragon scales. And he's tried over and over again countless times to get rid of this skin, and and nothing has worked. And in this famous scene, a lion by the name of Aslan, a C.S. Lewis depiction of Jesus, comes along. And I want to read this scene for you. I have it on the screen so that you can follow along here. Then the lion said, but I don't know if it spoke, you will have to let me undress you. I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you, but I was pretty nearly desperate now. So I just lay flat down on my back to let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. You know, if you've ever picked the scab at a sore place, this is my favorite part, it hurts like Billy O. But it is such fun to see it coming away. Edmund replied, I know exactly what you mean. Eustace continued, he said, well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I'd done it myself the other three times, only they hadn't hurt. And there it was, lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. And there was I, as smooth and soft as a peeled switch. I have no idea what a switch is. What is it? A stick. All right, beautiful. Thank you. Google could have told me that, but here I am, and I've learned today. Smaller than I had been. Then he says, then, talking about Aslan, he caught hold of me. I didn't like that much, for I was very tender underneath now that I had no skin on, and he threw me into the water. It smarted like anything, but only for a moment. After that, it became perfectly delicious. And as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain had gone from my arm. And then I saw why. I turned into a boy again. After a bit, the lion took me out and dressed me. Dressed you? Edmund asked with his paws. Eustace replied, well, I don't exactly remember that bit, but he did somehow or other in new clothes. If you guys brought your Bibles, you can turn to Colossians chapter 3. We're going to be reading verses 12 to 17 this morning. Now, as you turn there, I just want to give a disclaimer. Uh, We are not going to get to every little piece of the text that I'm going to read this morning. This text is so jam-packed with awesomeness and amazingness that we'd be here for five hours if we were to unpack each and every little bit this morning. We are continuing uh, this morning in our series in Colossians, and we're wrapping up a sort of two-part set of instructions that Paul gives to the church in Colossae to sort of live in the reality that the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus makes possible, that we are dead to sin and we have been made alive in Christ. 
And last week, Torin taught on the first part, where Paul says, you gotta, you've got to put to death these vices, right? In other words, we have to allow God to strip us of our old clothes. Torin did this to himself. He, he plans the series and the schedule, and he had to do this part last week, all right? Poor planning on his part, if you ask me. He would say so himself. And so last week maybe felt like Eustace, like the skin getting peeled off, right? And my hope is that this morning, that this week, feels a little bit more, hopefully, like the putting on of the new clothes. Eustace says, he dressed me in new clothes. All right, so let's read here this morning, Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 to 17. Paul writes this. He says, therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. So I want to stop here really quick. We're going to focus in here on verse 17, but as we read, I just want to stop and mention a couple of quick things before we get there, all right? So first notice in verse 12, Paul starts, he says, therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. So from the jump, Paul's establishing, listen, it is your identity as God's chosen people who are holy and dearly loved that empowers you to put on any of these other clothes. Without that, if you miss that, you'll miss the rest. All right, it's our identity as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. And then Paul says, put on these clothes, compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Then he says, bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Paul says, Listen, if you pursue compassion or gentleness, if you do any of these things without pursuing love, you will fail at these virtues. Instead, you'll fall for the vices that, he, that I just outlined, right? Because love is what keeps all of these things together. Without love, these virtues become unbalanced and they become distorted. So for Paul, our ability to put on these clothes, our ability to become loving flows from our identity as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. And if we don't pursue love above all of these things, then we will miss the rest. We'll fall for the vir- or, uh, fail at these virtues, fall for the vices. All right, let's keep reading here. Paul says, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. I want to pause again here. You're like, geez, get through this thing, man. All right, so verse 15, Paul says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. I love what commentators say. This is like the nerdiest thing ever, okay? They say here that Paul, in a world of Pax Romana, you guys familiar with the Pax Romana, right? It's the message of the Roman Empire, Roman peace, right? It was really Roman oppression, but it was was order, uh, held up by a system of division and hierarchies, right? In a world of Pax Romana, Paul offers Pax Christiana. That's what they say. So corny, but so good. Pax Christiana, where Christ is all and is in all, where there is no Jew or Gentile, slave, free, Scythian, barbarian. Christ is all and is in all. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace, and this should lead to gratitude, Paul says, and be thankful. Then he says in verse 16, let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. One more pause, the message of Christ. Some of us read that, we hear that, and we think, oh, okay, the Bible. I got to read my Bible. Yes, that's true. You should read your Bible. But that's not exactly what Paul has in mind here when he says the message of Christ. What Paul's referring to is the message of Christ. Of Christ, the good news of Jesus, who Jesus is and what he has done, which the Bible points to and the Bible contains. But the point here for Paul is the person of Jesus, who he is, what he's done. The Bible points to that. 
All right? And then here we go. This is the crescendo. This is where we're going to kind of sit this morning. Verse 17, is, it's all this sort of comes together. Paul says, he's like, listen, it's your identity. You can't miss that, right? you got to pursue love. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Let the message of Christ dwell among you. Be thankful. And then he says, whatever you do, whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God, the Father through him. So good, right? Like for some of you that you have this on a keychain, for those of us who have keychains still, right? And, and some of you, you guys have this like tattooed on your body. For some of you guys, this was part of your wedding ceremony or, or it's your life verse. And I'm not here to make fun of that. I'm not here to like change your opinion on that or anything. I think that's awesome. I think that this is one of the richest passages that we have in our Bible. This idea that as Christians, everything that we do, whether it's big, whether it's small, and everything in between we do in worship and in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. N.T. Wright writes this. uh, He summarizes this passage. He says, whatever you do, whatever you do must be able to have these words written above it. In the name of the Lord Jesus. Whatever you do should be able to have those words written above it. And then he says this, settle that in your hearts and minds, and a great deal else will fall into place. So good. So true. And so my hope this morning is that through our time together, that the Lord would allow this idea to settle deeper, just a little deeper, into our hearts and minds, and and other things will fall into place. That we as Christians, everything that we do should be done in the name of the Lord Jesus with gratitude in our hearts. Whether it's, whether it's working at our job or raising our family or driving in our car, going to the gym, watching Netflix, gardening. I don't know what it is, but it should all be done in the name of the Lord Jesus with gratitude in our hearts. And I'm going to be honest with you guys. This morning, I thought that the message this week was just going to, like, piggyback off of this awesomeness from Paul. And I was just going to go, hey, like, here's, here's how everything that we do matters. Here's how it can be worshipped. We do it in the name of Jesus. It allows us to put these virtues on. It's going to be awesome. It's going to be great. And then Jesus got in my way this week. I know. He does that sometimes because I started to think and, and meditate, pray through Paul's instruction that, Everything that we do should be in the name of the Lord Jesus. And I remembered and I kind of got stuck on a warning from Jesus towards the end of his Sermon on the Mount. Jesus gives this Sermon on the Mount. It's sort of his manifesto, what he's all about, what his kingdom's going to be like. And at the end, towards the end of his Sermon on the Mount, he gives this warning. He says, this is what the final days are going to be like. This is what the judgment days are going to be like. When I come, and he writes this in Matthew chapter 7, verses 22 to 23, he says this. He says, many... Many, not few, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Now, it's very probable that these people are guilty of not doing everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, like Paul says, right? But at least they've done some, and Jesus says, away from me. I never knew you, you evildoers. How do we make sense of this? 
I think that this warning from Jesus sheds a light on Paul's instruction, but to be able to allow that light to shine through, I think we have to kind of rewind and go all the way back to the beginning of the Bible in the book of Genesis, all right? So I'm going to invite you to come on a little biblical theological adventure with me, okay? So strap in, all right? There's going to be a fun pit stop on the way, fun for you, not for me, I promise, okay? You'll know what I mean in a second. All right, so we start all the way at the beginning, the book of Genesis, right? God, many of you are familiar with the story. God created the heavens and the earth, right? He created the sun, the moon, the stars, the animals, Adam and Eve, man and woman. He created them in his image. He made them, it says. And then God said, go for it, all right? Have fun. I want you to, to rule this place. Have sex. Have children. It's all yours, okay? Enjoy it, except one thing, right? There's this tree, all right? If you eat from it, it's going to bring you knowledge of good and evil. I want you to stay away from that. Enjoy the rest. Spoiler alert, things don't go so well, right? Adam and Eve take from the tree. The one thing God told them not to do, they do. They sin. They refuse their relationship with God. Now, we often think of this moment. Most of us familiar with the story know that Adam and Eve are tempted. And and we often think of this moment for for Eve and Adam, because he's right there, because he takes the fruit right after as being tempted by the serpent who tempted them with like a fruit. And we often think of that fruit as an apple, which is crazy because my elementary education in Indiana tells me apples didn't exist before Johnny Appleseed, okay? So I have no idea how apples were there in the Garden of Eden without Johnny Appleseed. Uh, But we often think of them being tempted as first with a fruit or first with the tree, right? That's how we think of it. But I, I think, and I'm not alone in this, that the first thing that Adam and Eve were tempted with wasn't with a fruit, it wasn't with a tree, it was with a name. A name. I'm going to explain what I mean, but first we're going to make a pit stop. This is the one that's fun for you, not for me. I'm going to tell you, this is the most embarrassing thing about myself. Like, period. Like, ever. Okay, I hope it continues to be the most embarrassing thing. Hopefully nothing else happens that's more embarrassing. Oh, I can't believe I'm doing this. Uh, growing up, I called my parents mommy and daddy. You're like, so what? So did I. Yes, but I didn't stop when most people stop at the age of like six or seven, okay? I called my parents mommy and daddy until I was in middle school. And that's not the end of the story. Uh, I kept calling them mommy and daddy into high school. You have an image of me at like a high school function going, mommy, daddy, that's it. That's me in high school. All right, I called my parents mommy and daddy in high school. And that's not the end of the story. Yeah, I know. Some of you are like, who let this psychopath up on the stage to teach the Bible today? I called my parents mommy and daddy until the middle of my freshman year of college. I know. When they make, like, those uh, documentaries about the, the serial killers, they, like, trace it all back to, like, and he called his parents mommy and daddy until his freshman year of college, right? <laughs> I'm not a serial killer, I promise. Uh, I'll never forget, I went, I think we went home or my parents visited or something, and at the time, uh, my girlfriend, maybe not even my girlfriend, but I, I, was definitely, I was definitely digging on her. Olivia was with me, and she heard me refer to my parents, one of them as mommy or daddy, And in the moment, she didn't say anything, but now she constantly makes fun of me. And she thought to herself, like, listen, I think I like this guy, but, like, if this continues, like, we're done. We're done quick, you know. Now, like I said, 
this is the most embarrassing thing about myself, okay? Now, it, it's fun. We can, we can make fun of it. My family, we make fun of it. It's ridiculous. Truly, it's ridiculous. But the truth is that I would rather have parents who, by the time I was in middle school, high school, college, or whatever, still were physically present and emotionally present to the point that it made sense, at least, to call them mommy or daddy. Truly. Like, there are some people who, by the time they're six or seven, their parents are physically distant or emotionally distant, and it just doesn't even make sense to call them by this affectionate name, mommy and daddy. Because names matter. Names mean something. The way that we refer to someone is usually an indicator of the kind of relationship that we have with them. And the kind of relationship that we have with them is usually a driver for the name that we will call them. So like, if you have a parent who's a doctor, you probably don't call them Dr. Mom or Dr. Dad, unless your family's like as psycho as my family, right? Maybe you do. (laughs) One person thought that was funny. Um, If you have a sibling who's a teacher, like you don't call them like Mrs. Smith or Mr. Boyd, like you call them like Allison or Tyler, whatever your sibling's name is, right? If you have a friend who's a pastor, you probably don't call them reverend or pastor, right? Unless you're joking, of course, which I've been on the end of that joke. How you refer to someone, the name that you give them is usually an indicator of the relationship that you have with them or lack thereof. You see, names matter. Names mean something. And names mean something in the book of Genesis, in the creation account that we're given in Genesis 2 and Genesis 3. You see, the writer refers to God in this creation account over and over again as the Lord God. Over and over again, you'll see. If you open your Bibles, we're going to read in a second. You'll see it's Lord God. It seems repetitive. Why is it written like that? Well, real quick, here's why. Lord God is a combination of God's personal name. You'll see on the, on the yeah, left, it says Yahweh. This is God's personal name. When Moses asks for God's name, God says, my name is Yahweh. This is God's personal name. And Yahweh is written in our Bibles as Lord in all caps. And then it's also God's proper title. It's God's proper title. On the right, you'll see it's the word Elohim. And this is just a proper title for a God in the, book, in the world of, that the book of Genesis is written into. Quite honestly, you could walk around that day, that time, and, and, and maybe later on you'd hear somebody who's saying, talking about a God that they believe in, and they'd call that God Elohim, and they might not be referring to the God of Israel, the God of Moses, the God of the Bible, right? It's a proper title. So when in Genesis the writer refers to God, it's Lord God. It's Yahweh Elohim. It's personal name. It's proper title. All right, we're going to read. I'm just going to rattle these off over and over again. This is what you'll see. It says, the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. The Lord God formed man. Uh, The Lord God planted a garden in Eden. The Lord God made to spring up every tree. The Lord God took the man, put him in the garden of Eden. The Lord God said, it's not good for man to be alone. The Lord God formed every beast of the field. The Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. The Lord God had taken from the man. He made into woman and brought her to the man. And then at the beginning of chapter 3, the chapter that's titled The Fall, it says this in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Over and over again, it's the Lord God. Until the serpent slithers along. And in verse 1, of chapter 3, it continues, it says, he, talking about the serpent, said to the woman, did God, the music should stop, 
wait, just God? Just Elohim? Where did God's personal name go? The serpent is tempting Eve, stripping God of his personal name, stripping God of his relationship, and trying to make God this untrustable, distant title. Did God actually say that you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And then check out how Eve responds. It says, the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God, just God, just Elohim, just the proper title, said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Eve has bought in to the lie that the serpent is telling her. And this, after this, things take a downward turn. Sin enters. Everything is broken. And the root of sin is ultimately, it's a failure to see God for who he truly and really is. A God who wants a relationship, a God who has a name, a God who we see in the life of Jesus who is gentle and lowly, but who is fierce and will never stop pursuing us, not because we loved him, but because he first loved us. And you see, because we are human, we are ancestors of Adam and Eve, we are broken and sinful, we find ourselves slipping into this old pattern over and over again, failing to see God for who he really is, failing to see God for who he truly is. And this is partly why I think Jesus warns us in his Sermon on the Mount. So circling back to Jesus' warning in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' personal name is Jesus. If you hear one thing this morning at church, Jesus' name is Jesus, okay? It's, it's written probably as Yeshua. That's the Hebrew pronunciation of Jesus, Yeshua. This is Jesus' personal name, okay? Now, Lord is a proper title given to Jesus. It's a word written kyrios. Kyrios is a word translated as Lord, and it's a proper title given to Jesus, but also other uh, people in power and authority in the world of the New Testament. In fact, one of the most common phrases in the Roman Empire was, Caesar is Lord. Caesar is Kyrios. So Lord, Kyrios, is a proper title for Jesus. Jesus is his personal name. Now, these disciples, they come to Jesus, and they say, Jesus, we've done this in your name. We've done this in your name. We've done this in your name. Jesus says, away from me. I never knew you. And we start to feel bad. We start to feel trouble. We start to feel confused. Me too. I've felt all of those emotions. But there's, there's other reasons, but I think there's a fine, tiny little detail we need to pay attention to when we read and hear Jesus' warning in this illustration. How do these people refer to Jesus? It's not... Lord Jesus, it's not his proper title, his personal name. It's not Jesus, just his personal name. Nope. It's Lord, Lord. Just his title. Just his title. I'm sure these people were guilty of other things, but one of the things I think they missed, one of the most fundamental things that they were doing is they were doing all of these works in Jesus' title not his name. And this is why we have to pay attention to Paul's instruction here. Because Paul says, whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Personal name, proper title. Lord Jesus, Kyrios Yeshua, giving thanks to God the Father. Personal name, 
proper title. Personal name, Father. This is the name that Jesus gave God, the name that we continue in following Jesus. Father, it's pater theos, proper title for God. Do everything in word and deed and give in the name of the Lord Jesus, personal name, proper title, giving thanks to God the Father, personal name, proper title. When we are trying to put on the virtues of the new clothes, when we're trying to love, when we're trying to let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts, when we're trying to let the message of Christ dwell among us, when we're trying to be grateful and and, in gratitude, we cannot forget who God is and our relationship to him. And this, my friends, is the forest that I don't want us to miss for the trees this morning. We will never do anything, let alone everything, in the name of the Lord Jesus if we forget that the one who rescued us wants a relationship with us. And we will never do anything, let alone everything, giving thanks to God the Father, if we forget that we are a son or a daughter. I'll say that again. We will never do anything, let alone everything, in the name of the Lord Jesus, if we forget that the one who rescued us wants a relationship with us, and we will never do anything, let alone everything, giving thanks to God the Father, if we forget that we are a son or a daughter. I want to back it up one more time to Adam and Eve. Do you want to know the first thing that Adam and Eve do after they've sinned? After they've refused their relationship with God, after they've done the thing that he told them not to do, they've taken the tree from the fruit of knowledge of good and evil, it says in verse 7, it says, then the eyes of both of them were open, they knew that they were naked, they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. They made clothes. This is the first thing that Adam and Eve do after they've sinned. Now, here's the amazing part. This is the part that hit me like a ton of bricks this week. Do you want to know the first thing that God does to or for Adam and Eve after they've sinned? If you're familiar with the story, it says God's walking through the cool of the day. He says, Adam and Eve, where are you? He knows where they're at. He knows what they've done. He wants to hear it from them. He then pronounces the effects of the sin to Adam and to Eve and to the serpent. But the first thing God does to or for Adam and Eve after they've sinned He makes them clothes. Verse 21 of chapter 3 of Genesis, it says this, And the Lord God made made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Why would God do this? God's like, get those fig leaves out of here. Let me hook you up with some skins, all right? It's the Gucci of the ancient world. No. That is not what's happening. That's just a joke, okay? That's not what's happening. So why does God do this? These fig leaves, these clothes, they represent that Adam and Eve are no longer what they should be. They are a confession from Adam and Eve, a confession from God that you are not what you were created to be. But they are also a testimony, a promise that God will one day make them what they should be again. That one day God will make us what we should be again. God rejects their own efforts, their own self-clothing, their own self-fixing efforts. He rejects those. He says, get those fig leaves out of here, and then he does it himself. It's the first of a long line of demonstrations of mercy and promises of restoration that comes to fruition in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. The reality that Paul's saying we have to live in, you've been dead to sin and you've been made alive in Christ. You have been made alive in Christ. 
And I think that the, the difficult thing with all of this is that we can, in an effort to, to strip ourselves of the old clothes, to put on the new clothes, we can try and we can do and we can work really, really hard. We can try and be more compassionate. We can try and be more gentle. We can try and do things that are, that are mighty works. We can try and prophesy. We can try and do all of these things. But the truth is that all of those efforts will just be our own version of Adam and Eve's fig leaves if we forget that we are, have been rescued, we are in need of rescue, we have been rescued, we cannot rescue ourselves, and that the one who rescued us wants a relationship with us. And that we are a, a beloved son, a beloved daughter of our God who is Father. Like, we, we can try and we can change policy we can work to prevent homelessness. We, we can work to make our city and our community a, a better place, a different place. All things that Jesus wants us to do, by the way. But if we forget that we are a beloved son or daughter, our identity, which allows us to truly love, it's where our power to love truly flows from. If we forget that, it's all fig leaves. Like we can work and we can try to, to work ourselves out of our own porn addiction or, or our gambling problem or our alcoholism. But if we forget that our salvation and our righteousness is hidden in Christ and not in our own imaginary checklist of whether or not we had a good or a bad week this week, it's all fig leaves. We can try and spend more time reading the Bible. We can try and spend more time in prayer. We can try and be a good leader but if it's all to impress others and get other people's attention and we forget that Jesus said that those things should be done in secret and our Father who sees in secret will reward you, it's all fig leaves. We can go to church on Sunday, small group on Wednesday, we can say all the right things, but if we forget that Jesus isn't asking to be one of our hobbies, he's asking to be the foundation of our lives, it's all fig leaves. We can do we can try, but if we forget that the king who rescued us wants a relationship with us, that we have been rescued, we are in need of rescue, we cannot rescue ourselves, it will be our own version of Adam and Eve's fig leaves. And one day, Jesus will say, I never knew you. And this is not doom and gloom. This is not bad news. My friends, this is good news. Jesus has done what we could not do. Our Father, our God loves us so much, he sent his only son to live and to die, to be resurrected so that we could be made alive in Christ. Like Eustace with Aslan, Jesus wants to like rip off these old clothes and he wants to dress us with the new clothes. But all of that starts with us dropping our fig leaves and bowing down at the feet of a king who rescues us back into relationship. Our God, who is our Father, we, his beloved children. And if we miss that, we'll miss the rest. We'll fail at these virtues. We'll fall for the vices. So we're going to move into a time of worship and response. In our text today, Paul says, he talks about the gathered assembly. He talks about singing, admonishing, and singing songs of hymns and psalms and songs from the Spirit. That's what we're going to do this morning. 
And my hope and my prayer is that we sing in worship, in gratitude to to King Jesus, whose kingdom is simple, that the peace of Christ would just rule in our hearts, that his message would dwell among us. And maybe there's some things that that you need to lay down this morning, some fig leaves, some things that you've been doing to kind of put to death these things and put on these new things, but it's kind of been getting in the way. It's been getting in the way of the new clothes. It's been getting in the way of the relationship that Jesus wants to have with you. Maybe you need to set that down. I don't know where you're at this morning, but here's my hope and my prayer as we move into a time of response and worship, okay? Eustace says that Aslan's ripping off these clothes, and then he says, and then he took hold of me. And my hope and my prayer is that as we move into a time of response and worship, that we would expect and that we would experience our King Jesus, who rescued us, who wants a relationship with us, taking hold of each and every one of us and doing and saying whatever it is he wants to do and say with each of you this morning. We have a prayer team that would love to pray with you as we respond and worship this morning. Let's pray. Jesus, you are a king, a lord, who has a personal name, who wants a personal relationship with us. You have rescued us back into that. And so as we respond in worship this morning, would you do like Eustace says with Aslan, would you take hold of us? It may feel uncomfortable at first. We may feel raw. We may feel tender. But ultimately, would you use this time to turn us back into what we should be, who you created us to be. Help us put to death the old and put on the new, the the virtues, the wardrobe that you picked out for us from the very beginning, God. And all of that starts with our relationship with you, coming to you. We need you. We cannot do this without you. It's in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Come, Holy Spirit, come. Amen.